Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, it's truly good to be with you here today and to be able to talk to you today. If you um, were here last week, uh, you may not, or you, you would know that I was not able to be here Uh, For the first time in my life, this preacher lost his voice completely. And uh, that's a bad thing for a preacher, at least from my perspective, maybe not from others. But uh, so this week I get to double up, right, and give you the full load for two weeks. But I do want to share my appreciation to our staff. I had to kind of make the call last Friday night uh, that I wasn't going to be able to deliver a message on Sunday. And so um, Garrett had a night and a day to prepare a Mother's Day message, did a great job. Thank you to uh, Jordan. Um, she came, she shared a very powerful testimony as a mother. Rick took over the, helped Julie with all of the baby dedication and the Mother's Day events. Uh, he also uh, led a funeral for me, uh, not actually for me, but led a f- officiated a funeral in my behalf. So um, anyway, we're just really thankful for our staff and their very, very capable leadership. And uh, so I'm here today and we're back here in Exodus. So if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25, we're going to pick up with really what's going to be the last section of the book of Exodus. And so I want to just kind of, before we we look at a passage in Exodus 25, I want us to um, kind of get a framework for the book of Exodus. You could break it into four parts. The very first part is how God delivers the Hebrew people, his people, from Egypt. That's Exodus chapters 1 through 15. Then after that, it moves into God is meeting with his people at Mount Sinai, that's Exodus chapters 16 through 19. And in particular, chapter 19 is when they actually have this worship experience at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Then the next section, the third section, is how God makes a covenant with his people. That's Exodus chapters 20 through 24. And that covenant is summarized by the Ten Commandments. And then we come to the last section where we're at today, starting in Exodus chapter 25, all the way to the end of the book, which is chapter 40, is about how God lives with his people through the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle is the big focus with this whole last third of the book of Exodus. When you think about tabernacle, you really just need to think about God dwelling with his people. God living with his people because it literally is going to be the house of God. So let's pick up our key verse uh, for today, our verses, is Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. It says, then have them, this is God speaking 
to Moses and the Israelites, then have them, the Israelites, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God is now telling Moses to instruct the people to make a sanctuary. That's a holy place, a sacred place. And it's going to be his house where he's going to live among the Israelites. Not just with them, but among them. And it's going to be called the tabernacle. That's what his house, it's really, a, it was a, a portable tent, a house that was a tent that was going to be moved as the Israelites moved. And they're going to actually live in this house. We're going to find out if you read the rest of the story for almost 500 years. It's where God lived with his people in the tabernacle. And then eventually it's going to become the temple, a permanent home for God that uh, was modeled completely after the pattern of the tabernacle. Now it says at the end of verse 9, he says, uh, make it in all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means when Moses, if you remember in, in the covenant era, uh, when they were at Mount Sinai, Moses climbed up and down that mountain, we think, at least eight times. And during some of those latter ascents, God met with him in, for some extended time, one occasion for 40 days and 40 nights, and he reveals to him, he tells him, and even shows him, apparently, this blueprint for his house, the tabernacle. So as we read through the last part of Exodus, 25 through 40, you're reading some very specific detailed instructions about each part of this house and the significance of it. And so that's what we're going to kind of do today. But before we jump into looking at the tabernacle, um, let's look at how they, they, they're, they're going to make this house out of the finest items they had the best of the best. It was truly what we would call a um, lavish home, exquisite in every way, absolutely extraordinary. And you're gonna see that by the provisions that God had them bring. If you'll just read the first few verses of chapter 25, it says, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. I love that. Weren't required. They were just given the opportunity to give and God was gonna prompt them. I think that's how God works. We have a tremendous privilege when we get to give offerings to the Lord. He doesn't need our offering." But we need to give our offerings. And so it's just a beautiful free will part of the story. They, and then we'll read later, we'll have a sermon on this later about how well they did in their giving. It was unbelievable. I'll just save that one for another time. But it says here, these are the offerings you're to receive from them. Listen to what was being brought. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, uh, yarn and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing of oil, and the fragrant incense, 
And then all these precious onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod in the breastplate. That's going to be for the high priest. So the finest of stones, the finest of um, precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, the finest of linens. And everything that was brought was the very best. You're going to see that in the story. How did they get this stuff? They got it from the Egyptians. Remember when they, right before they left Egypt, after that last plague, the Passover plague, the Egyptians began to just give them things to get them to leave. And the Bible says uh, they plundered the Egyptians. And so they gave them all of these things, including the animals that are going to have an important role in this part of the story. All right, well, let's take a look at the tabernacle. You want to? I think some things are better. Um, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. So I'm going to show you some pictures, quite a few pictures today of the tabernacle. These actually come from a man named Eric Buchok, who wrote a, a book called The Tabernacle. And what he's doing in this is he has recreated from the scriptures what the tabernacle and all of these, the furniture and the furnishings would have looked like. Because we get very detailed descriptions from Moses in Exodus. All right, so let's take a look at it. Uh, first of all, we're going to start with a little aerial view. This is going to be a um, kind of like a, a drone shot here. And we're looking down at the tabernacle with all of its courtyard. So I think it's important to kind of take a look and get our bearings. We're told that this is 150 foot long and 75 foot wide. That's 50 yards long, 25 yards wide. That's a fourth of an American football field, the whole courtyard. It was a seven and a half foot tall fabric fence that went all the way around it. And we do think it was wide except for the gate entrance. Uh, it was facing east, tabernacle and the temple always face towards the east. And that's where the entrance of it is. You notice in there, the tabernacle itself is the tent. So it's, and the tent we'll find out is not that large. Um, it's, it's only uh, 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. That's 15 yards long, five yards wide. Not very big at all. Uh, but that's, that's the tabernacle. Then you notice there's two other pieces in there. You have a wash basin between the tabernacle and then the altar where they made all the burnt offerings is what you're seeing with the smoke coming up from it. So this is, uh, let's I'm gonna zoom in a little bit. We'll look at the altar next. Uh, this is the altar. This is where all the sacrifices were made. The priests were required to keep a fire lit at that altar at all times, perpetual fire. So I don't know how it worked when they had big rainstorms. I can imagine the Levites hanging out with some kind of tarp or something. But they had to keep that fire burning constantly. And that's where all of the sacrifices happened outside the tent in the courtyard. All right? They would have to wash their hands in this basin. That's the next one, the wash basin. And that was made, all of this was made of bronze, both the altar and this. And um, burnished bronze, this was a real polished bronze. The women brought their bronze mirrors, it were, we were told in Exodus 38, to make this particular wash basin. 
priests would have to wash their hands and their feet before they provided an offering and before they entered into the tabernacle. So these were the main things out there. Here's the picture of what I think we see of how this worked. The people would bring animals for sacrifice. They would come to the the front gate of the tabernacle. They would meet with a priest to say they wanted to make a sacrifice. Uh, Leviticus 1 kind of gives us all of this, the play-by-play. They would then, I think, go into the courtyard next to the altar. The person making the offering would lay his hands, her hands, on the animal. They would have a prayer where basically the person's sins, the prayer of confession, would be transferred to that unblemished animal. Then the priest would actually hand the knife to the person making the offering, the sacrifice. The person would have to slit the animal's throat. The priest would collect blood in a container of the animal as the animal's dying. Then we're told that the person would have to skin the animal and cut it up. So I think the Levites, who were kind of assistants to the priest, probably had tables somewhere in that courtyard, maybe on the southern side. I've seen pictures. They would probably go assist them as they cut up the animal, skin the animal. And then they would bring the meat over to the priest, who again would wash his hands and his feet, take it to the altar, and begin to burn it on on the altar. And so what I think you're going to see, if you were there, maybe in this hot desert, you'd have animals all around the outside of this courtyard, people getting their animals ready to be brought. And they would literally sacrifice hundreds of animals every day that they would bring one by one and go through this process. It probably would have smelled a lot like a stockyard. It would have smelled a lot like a, a slaughterhouse kind of an unair-conditioned slaughterhouse, and maybe like a barbecue restaurant all at the same time because they're burning this meat on the fire, maybe an overcooked meat of a barbecue restaurant. That's what you, you need to think about, and this was happening all the time, day after day. Special sacrifices were made on the Sabbath, but the other days the people would be bringing these to the priest. So that's the picture you need to have in mind. As we think about it, um, let's think about the priests for just a moment. They would have, the priests all came from the Levites, and not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. Just kind of keep that in mind. They came from Aaron's family, Moses' brother. He was the first high priest, and he had four sons that we're told about in Scripture Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithathar. They were the four sons, they were the first priests that actually did all this, the ministry. Only the priests could go into the tabernacle itself. And so they had a big job to do. And then the Levites, I think, just assisted them with setting up the tabernacle, taking down the tabernacle, transporting the tabernacle, repairing the tabernacle, and probably assisting them with all of these offerings uh, with with the meat and so forth. So that's how it, it kind of worked. Let's look at the priest. We got a picture here. This is the high priest, actually. The normal priest would have these bleached white robes with a white turban and the sashes. That's what Aaron's sons would wear. Aaron, the high priest, would wear over his white tunic 
a blue ephod is what it's called, very ornate robe on top of that. The bottom he'd have bells and pomegranates and then he'd have this breastplate, beautiful breastplate that had stones for each of the 12 tribes and on the top shoulders there were onyx stones with the names of the 12 tribes on those, on those stones. At the top, if you see his head, I don't know if we can see his head, but it's got a little thing, a little plaque that says, holy to the Lord. He was the high priest. And so he had a special deal. But everything, of course, was very, very symbolic. He was a very special person. So let's, uh, what would happen is we, let's go to the tabernacle itself for a moment. Look at these pictures. Um, these are the coverings. You see, there were four layers of coverings on the outer walls. You had this very beautiful linen with uh, embroidered cherubim, those angels embroidered on the first layer. After that, you had goat skin. And then you had on top of that, I think the next picture shows uh, ram skin dyed red. And then on top of that, you had uh, leather or calf skin. Four layers. It would have been very heavy. So it had a, quite an infrastructure to hold all this stuff up. But it was also very durable because this thing is out there in the middle of these horrific storms and everything. And it was completely waterproof and completely sturdy. A lot of work went into it. The frames were made out of acacia wood. That's a desert wood. And they were all covered with gold. Everything was covered with gold. And they have these gold rings, kind of like shower curtains that would connect the fabrics and the coverings to the braces that they would make out of this wood. So very, very elaborate. Let's look at the very, then they got gold walls. The interior walls were completely, this was, uh, were completely gold. This is the outer wall, but you'd see the inside was smooth without the, the carrying rails. All gold. So when you go into the tabernacle, what you're going to see is this gold reflecting all around you. Fascinating. Exquisite. Uh, let's look at the entrance real quick. This is the entrance to the tabernacle, again, in face east. We're told about the colors. This is just a guesstimate on how those colors were put together. But you had white, which we believe symbolized purity. Uh, we have blue, which symbolizes heaven, like the blue sky points heavenward. You had purple, which symbolizes royalty. And then you had scarlet, which symbolizes sacrifice or blood. And all of those symbols and themes are running through this whole story. So everything is tied together to kind of tell us a story about who God is and what this place is all about. So what would happen is um, the priest could go into, all the priests could go into, the first room they would come into is called the holy place. All right, it was about two-thirds of the tabernacle. Uh, and so it was uh, 10 yards long and five yards wide, not very big. Three articles of furniture were in there. Let's look at them real quick. First one is the lampstand. This is the only light source in the tabernacle. Had seven lamps. These were almond blossoms. It was uh, all carved out and made uh, out of pure gold. And then, but then there would be these lamps that would sit into the actual um, uh, almond buds that you see there, the flowered buds. And then they would have these lamps with the finest of olive oil, pure olive oil. They'd have wicks and things. And they had to keep this burning continually. 
This was a big job to always keep them furnished with fresh oil, trim the wicks, make sure that all the lamps were burning. This is the only light source in the tabernacle. Uh, very important. All right, this has been on the southern wall. So if you walk in, it's going to be right to your left. You look to the other side across the room to the north, you would have this table of showbread. It was about uh, a little over two foot tall, three foot long, a foot and a half wide. Uh, it was made of acacia wood, but then covered with gold. Then you see the, um, the plates and the pitchers, they were pure gold. And they had a special recipe that God gave Moses to cook this bread. It looked like pancakes. Six on one plate, six on the other, symbolizing the 12 tribes. They would bake fresh bread every single Sabbath. And then they would take the old bread and the priest would eat the bread in the tabernacle, in the holy place, as part of a ceremonial act of worship. That's how it went every week. All right, so what's, what's all this? Well, let's go to one more. One more article is the, um, yeah, this is the altar of incense. And this would have been, if you walk in, it'd be right in front of you, in front of the veiled curtain. All right, and so this is the altar of incense that was burning incense. It was about three foot tall, foot and a half wide square, had little horns on the ends of each of the corners. And it was where they were burning this incense. Again, God gave a recipe, a special incense they could only burn in the tabernacle. And this fragrant offering would be going up. You see the picture there, the close-up. Um, so you walk in, you would see smoke in this room always. And you would, see, you would smell this beautiful fragrance from the incense. The priest would have to light it every morning. And then they would go replenish it every evening. And they had a way for it to burn continuously. So that's pretty powerful. What's the symbolism of all this? The light, I think, symbolizes God's glory. Splendor, he's the light of the world. That's the lampstand. The bread, I think, symbolizes his desire to fellowship with us. We even saw when he brought them up on the mountain, the elders in Exodus 24, uh, they had a meal with the Lord. He desires a meal, that's intimacy, that's friendship. That's close. That's what God is communicating, I think, with this bread. And then the altar of incense. There's different theories of what that incense represents. One is they think the smoke actually provided a protective covering for the priest. Because what you're going to see is, again, God's going to live in this house, this tent, in, in the back room. And, and so, in some respects, the smoke kind of hid them from the full presence of God, which we think was some kind of protection. But here's another thing that I think the incense represents, and I love this. It's in Scripture. In um, Psalm 141, listen to what this says. This is David. He says, may my prayer, he's talking about prayer, be set before you like what? Like incense. May my, the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And then we come to Revelation chapter five, verse eight. Listen to this. And when he had taken it, that's the scroll, the four living creatures, this is a heavenly scene of worship. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. These are angels. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song to the Lord. 
When we pray to God, it's like a fragrant offering going up to heaven. He loves the prayers of his people. He craves the aroma that comes from the prayers of his people. He loves to answer our prayers, to release his power into our needs, our circumstances. Uh, To me, this just is a beautiful picture of prayer and how important it is to the people of God. So that's what you're going to see in the holy place. You see this curtain there. Um, that's the, we'll get the curtain behind that last altar of incense. Uh, actually, go to the one before this. Um, yeah, right there. That's the curtain. That's the veil. And some, there's a, we don't know exactly. It had, it had the cherubim on it. It had the colors on it. This was separating the holy place from the holiest place or the holy of holies. So it's almost like the holy place is God's living room. The holy place is God's bedroom. That's where he stayed. And uh, so that curtain was separating. Only one person could go into that back room, the bedroom, the holy place, and he could only go into it one time a year. The person was the high priest, and the day was what's called the Day of Atonement. It was the only time anyone would enter that, and it was only one person. It had to be the high priest. So what's this whole thing about the Day of Atonement? Well, you kind of get a play-by-play on this in Leviticus chapter 16. This is how this would go down. The high priest, the first high priest was Aaron, and then the ones that followed him would do the same thing would put on separate garments, new garments for this day. And they would then go out, wash their hands in the basin and their feet. They would make a sacrifice on the outside altar with a, a, a bull. And that was a sacrifice for their personal sins. They would then take some coals from the altar fire, put it in a censer, and uh, they would take some blood from that offering of the bull They would walk into the tent, the tabernacle, into the holy place, go to the altar of incense, get some fresh incense, put it in the censer. They would then open the curtain and let the room fill with that smoke. Again, kind of a a covering for for their protection. Once the room filled with smoke, they would go over to the first item in that room. We'll see what it is. It's the only item in the room. And that is the... Ark of the Covenant. There it was, right against the back wall, the western wall with that gold wall shining, reflecting. The Ark is like a, it's even smaller than this table, probably. It's four foot long, two and a half foot wide, and, uh, and about two and a half feet tall. And it had these beautiful angels uh, on top of it that were molded out of uh, pure gold. It was covered, it's made of acacia wood, the ark was, but it was covered with pure gold. The cover, the lid was solid gold. In those angels, they were all one piece. What was inside the ark? You might remember they put the 10 commandments in there and those were the stone tablets sketched or, or uh, written by the finger of God himself. So God wrote those, gave them to Moses. They were kept in there. You have a jar of manna. It looks like two jars there, but that's just the reflection. There's one jar of manna, and then you had Aaron's rod eventually was put in there. What do these mean? 
Well, the commandments certainly represent God's covenant with his people. The jar of manna represents God's provision for his people. He fed them with manna for all those 40 plus years they were in the desert. And then the rod symbolizes God's protection and his power. Because every time they used the rod, miracles would happen and protection would happen and God's power would be on display. Those were kept in this ark. Look at the top cover of the ark. And this is what's called the mercy seat or the seat of atonement. This is where on the day of atonement, the high priest would go and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull. And he'd sprinkle it on on that cover beneath the angels, the cherubim. And then he was covered on the ground. Then he would go back outside. He would sacrifice a he goat, unblemished, do the same thing, take the blood, bring it in, sprinkle it on the altar and at his feet. That's for the people. And then he would go outside and there would be another goat. And he would lay his hands on that goat and confess the sins of all the Israelites And that goat would be escorted way out of camp by a man, an Israelite, as far away as they could. And the idea was that the sins of the people were forgiven and they were being taken away from camp. And that goat was called the scapegoat. That's where we get the term scapegoat. And that's the day of atonement. That's what would happen. So he had to have a sacrifice for himself and then come back and get a sacrifice for the people before he could enter into this holy place. Look here at this last picture of the ark. And this is a beautiful scene. Listen to what it says, the very last verses of Exodus. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting after they finished building this tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What a beautiful picture of the holiness of God. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? I think two things as we study the tabernacle, two key points I want us to think about. One is our holy God desires to dwell with his people, with you and me if you're a believer. He wants to dwell with us. This has been part of the story the whole time. Remember Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2? Where was God? Right there with Adam and Eve. In the garden, physically, and in every other way, present with his people. Then they messed that up, didn't they? And we, we helped with sin. We got cast out of the garden. Our relationship with God was damaged. But we see all the way through the story, even here, the presence of God is back with his people directly dwelling in the middle of the camp of the Israelites through the tabernacle. Then later, the New Testament, God sent his one and only son, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And then we continue reading the story of Christians in the New Testament. Once we receive Christ, what does God do? He comes to live not just with us, but within us, dwell with his people. And the very end of the story, you get to Exodus chapter 21. I love this. It says when uh, John saw a new heaven, a new earth, he said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
Listen to what he says. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they'll be his people and God will himself be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things is passed away. This is God's plan from point A to point Z. All the way through the story, God wants to dwell. Our all-powerful, holy, sacred God that knows everything, has all power, created us, and he wants to live with us and do life with us. And he's provided a way for that to happen. And that's really the last point. The tabernacle points to the atoning work of Christ. And because of that, it's very appropriate that today, as we talk about the tabernacle and atonement, it was all part of that, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 1115. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.